This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Good morning, Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave here in the piney woods of North Central Florida in God's country. And today we are enjoying a really the, the first real significant feeling of fall. My guest today is probably already feeling that for he's uh, coming to us from Michigan. And so I suspect there's a little more chilly uh, air there. But we've just gotten uh, our first taste here of a little bit of a fall weather, kind of cool. But not, you know bad enough to put on anything, uh, a sweater or anything yet. Uh, we'll be talking about the weather at the bottom of the hour. I want to thank uh, Melton Law. Melton Law is our partner here, sponsors us. They have 50 years of experience, full legal service, and they're the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators. Melton Law, as you know, won't back down. And, of course, we're protected 24-7, 365 by a crime prevention, our local crime prevention security system at cpss.net and check out the the uh, of course, check out the mugshots when you get a chance. Well, our guest today is uh, uh, Dr. Chad Savage, and um, he's brought up a topic that I've been interested in a long time, and that is well, I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a more intelligent way than I can talk about it. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, 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 the how much money has been spent on, uh, on COVID, and 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 you know, there's a lot of things about COVID that. Um, you really, you really don't know were spent using COVID as an excuse. I guess is the way to say it. So, <laughs> am I got that right, Doctor Chad? <laughs> oh, amen. Yeah, you definitely do, my friend. You know, it's interesting. You know what we call sweater weather up here in Michigan? We call that summer. So, <laughs> so, so I furrow my brow about the terrors of bringing out the sweaters as well. I don't know when we put them away. So. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I wrote that article. Thanks for having me on and thanks for bringing it up. You know, it's kind of a warning sign. I wanted to be a clarion call to just draw attention to the astronomically absurd levels of spending that we are we are engaging in here in the United States today. And a lot of that is being done under the auspices of COVID and COVID relief. And um, j- just just momentarily, I would like to kind of address how the Overton window, the kind of what is considered societally normal or acceptable for uh, for monetary values, has changed so dramatically over the years. Um, as, as there's a uh, Austin Powers, if you remember the movie in the 90s, where they had a 1960s spy who was brought out of cryogenic freeze, and they <laughs> awakened him, and he was so out of touch with the time that Dr. Evil, his arch nemesis, when he was trying to extort from the globe some monstrous sum to avoid his dastardly plan was trying to extort a million dollars and all of his lieutenants chuckled and rolled their eyes and looked at him and finally he recognizes that he's out of touch here and he goes oh oh uh, uh, a billion dollars and they go okay okay yes that's that's more likely than like it well in the intervening 30 years so that was a 30-year gap between the 60s and the 90s so we've now had another intervening 30 years and we've gone up yet another thousand fold and now we talk in the in the way of trillions as we did in the 90s when we spoke of billions and this is really only in the last several years that we've become so numb to uh, such astronomical astronomically absurd funds and i love the concept of visualization because when we're talking about these numbers you literally cannot conceptualize them so there is a website that that attempts to do so and they they use the analogy without referencing the policy or anything like that they just how much is is a is a stack of dollar bills if you took one dollar bills crisp cream clean dollar bills not wrinkled right off the printing press and you were to stack them up um a thousand dollars is about 4.5 inches tall a million dollars, a thousand of those, is about the same height as a 35-story skyscraper. 
Well, we're talking a million million when we talk to it about a trillion, and that's a quarter of the way to the moon. That's a, a tower of dollar bills that goes a quarter of the way to the moon. Well, in, in the United States today, we spent every year outside of the COVID pandemic now $4.5 trillion on healthcare. That is a pile of dollar bills that goes beyond the moon. And we have spent nearly twice that in COVID relief. Over $6 trillion authorized by the Congress and another trillion through administrative action, which means the presidency. And what the, the crux of this article was to say, how in the world, when they haven't spent all that, we have over $600 billion still left unspent from the congressional funding alone, not to mention there's about a, another $200 billion in the uh, presidential, the, the administrative allocation, uh, that we haven't even spent that, how in the world could they be going to ask for more funding when the president himself has declared the pandemic over? And um, if I may monologue further to follow Dr. Evil's uh, 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 line there, the, um, it, 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 that 600 billion, to put that into perspective, in the United States, we spend around $6 billion every year on cancer research. So that's equivalent to 100 years of cancer research yeah. spent from those wow. funds. And if you were to think about what we could accomplish with 100 years of cancer research, it would be plausible that we could actually cure cancer. And I would ask for people to truly, you know, inquire within their own minds, what do you think would be more meaningful? Do you think curing COVID, if that were even possible, and actually not what these funds are being spent on, if, the, the, if we could cure COVID or cure cancer, which has been a bane to the human species since our origination, which would be more impactful historically? And I don't think it's even close. You know, that's an excellent way to say it. And you've uh, captured so many things that I have been uh, in sort of a loose-ended way addressing from time to time on our shows. And it's been culminating in a, a curiosity that I've got, and you're helping me fulfill my uh, uh, interest in this. Just how many things have been affected by this excuse of COVID? And, you know, the thing that gets all the attention is the vax or not the vax, but that's not really where the real damage has been done. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the real damage has been done in killing your work ethic and high unemployment of people who don't see any reason to go work when they're getting this money along with the other money they're getting from the welfare state, if you will. And I don't know exactly what Biden was going to accomplish when the left hand giveth and the right hand taketh away in the bureaucratic system we've got now. I don't know if we, I'm so glad to hear you address it because I think it's timely. I don't know if we can reverse it. I don't, know where the money comes from. I think they print it. I don't think it's backed by anything. It's caused inflation. I was just trying to sum up the things it's caused. I can yeah. tell you two things that it can cause, inflation and the death of the work ethic if there was any left. Yeah. Well, you know, the pandemic itself caused damage, meaning the infections and such. But I would argue that when we look back historically, that will be fractional compared to the harm we enacted upon ourselves through the interventions to try to mitigate the infection. And I'm not saying that COVID was nothing. It obviously was something. But in the first few weeks of the pandemic, I wrote a piece in town hall basically cautioning, hey, be careful. Make sure that what we do is not worse than the disease itself. And at that time, an editor who was reviewing the piece for me said, you can't publish this now. He said, and, he, and he, I said, why? And he goes, you're going to publish this just as people are, are dying and, they, and you will be hated forever. And I insisted. I said, no, no, we are engaging in really irresponsible actions here. Closing society, you know, freezing the world. There is a consequence to that. And, we, and that consequence could, in fact, be many magnitudes worse than COVID. Just for, I mean, just, just think for a moment the difference in life expectancy between the wealthy and the poor. There's a life expectancy difference of around 10 years difference. So we have, if we impoverish a, a large segment of the global population, how many deaths occurred or premature deaths occurred because of it? And to take it further, we, we closed schools. And we're now starting to measure, and this was clear when it occurred that this was going to happen. We are now starting to measure substantial learning deficits that have occurred in this young generation who's just 
disproportionately born a front, you know, uh, a massive, uh, uh, un, un, disproportional burden of these uh, pandemic uh, pandemic interventions. And unfortunately, these consequences will likely last the rest of their life. When you don't hit certain developmental milestones, both educationally, developmentally, and otherwise. People just say, well, you know, make them up later. But it's not that way. Human bodies aren't that way. Our brain forms at certain times. There is a good chance that these will be generational harms that have been inflicted uh, upon the children of this world. And they will be suffering these consequences. So if you have less education, you tend to have a less well-paying job. And the less well-paying job can uh, result in premature uh, death, as I was mentioning, if you extrapolate those things. So the children who are going to bear the consequences of these inter- interventions will be bearing them long after the people who enacted them are, are dead and gone. So if this was a pandemic that largely affected the elderly. So an attempt to save the elderly of today, we were damning our children to a premature demise when they themselves were elderly. And that is, is reprehensible. How did we get such deaf ears on this? Is it because it became such an attractive political toy? You know, I've, I've, I really, I have, you know, tried to think about motivations to do this, and and I can't really wrap my head around it. I mean, there's a lot of nefarious reasons you could come up with, which almost sound conspiratorial. And I just, you know, someone recently said, you know, what a conspiracy is? It's it's a it's a you know six months until reality, basically until you know, or or it's um, you know, so I and I don't know that that's true or not. Fear could have been a legitimate part of it. I mean, we like to think that the higher ups, you know, the people in the NIH and, and things of this sort aren't aren't subject to irrational thought and fear because they have impressive degrees. But, you know, they're just as susceptible to rational thinking as any other human being. Um, and they're they're specialists, right? You know, they're specialized to think about one problem. So they were thinking just COVID without thinking of the broader ramifications. And, and unfortunately, if you step back even a few inches and look, you can see that the consequences, every a- action results in an equal and opposite reaction. Well, when your reaction, your initial action is that astronomical, you can expect an opposite reaction of the equal magnitude, if not more. And that's, I think, what we're seeing now. We are not done, unfortunately, with the financial suffering, the economic devastation that is a consequence of this. And what a lot of people don't think about is when you have economic devastation, you have unhappy people. And with economic, you know, unhappy people come disorder, disruption, um, violence, and even wars. I mean, World War II followed, not surprisingly, the Great Depression because people were susceptible to, to, you know, that kind of totalitarian thinking. Um, so, so you know, I, I don't know if there's some, you know, Illuminati or anything of that, you know, coordinating all this, or it's just irrational behaviors of human beings, which actually could be just as, as plausible. But either way, great, great harm is, is occurring. We must stop the foolishness. We, we've got to step back, let society, I mean, whatever damage is there, we got to recalibrate from where we are. We can't undo what was done, but at least we can stop digging the hole. And um, I think that's what I was trying to accomplish with this article. Dr. Chad Savage talking with us about something that's long been on my mind here in the Ward Scott Files, and that is what is all the collateral damage done by the initial understandable concern for what could be called a pandemic, but it's become unmanageable in terms of its far-reaching societal effects in all kinds of different ways. You know, uh, my mother lived, believe it or not, to be 107 and a half. Wow. And uh, she was born three months after the Titanic sank. Wait, your mother's 107? No, she died in February 19. Well, how old were you? My goodness, Lord. I thought you were much more spry and young than that. I'm over the hill. I'm over the hill, Chad. I'm over the hill. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she lived to be 107 and a half. Wow. And she was born three months after the Titanic sank. But my point is she went through the depression. And I think this COVID thing is going to be our generational depression. The depression permanently affected my mother. She never, ever got over it. Okay. Down to such little things as making sure the lights were turned out every time you left the room. Uh, down to be sure that you cleaned up everything on your plate. You wasted nothing. And I asked her one time, I said, how did you get through that? She says, well, we had no money, but we had food. Now, I've been trying to think what the curse is of COVID. We've got money. 
but it's not going that we're not going to have food and standard of living because of the effect of the oversupply of the money. You follow my logic here? Oh, absolutely. And what's money worth if you can't buy anything with it? You know, the 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 uh, several years back, there was an argument someone was making in a press conference trying to say, oh, things aren't bad. You know, DVD players, which were popular at the time, are, are less expensive than they were several years ago. And, and the reporter, to their credit, responded, yes, but I can't eat my DVD player. Um, so, you know, we'll look at certain segments of the economy like technology, and it does seem to get less and less expensive over time. But the staples of life like food are becoming rapidly more expensive as they become more scarce. And, you know, from what every, everybody's saying with the Ukrainian war, the disruption of fertilizer, the supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera, um, the plant fires and everything else that's occurring at these food production facilities, we're going to have food shortages. Well, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. That's a staple of life. Again, if you starve a population, you are going to have unrest. Um, so, so we've got some serious issues and we need serious people to deal with serious issues. And I don't know that we have that currently running our government. They are a result. They are distracted by, I think when you think of the grand scheme of the importance of life, fairly petty issues and not thinking about simply providing the staples of existence. This is Dr. Chad Savage, MD, for some of you who are wondering, yes, coming to us from Michigan and he's not frozen out yet. Uh, won't be for a couple of more months. But he has taken an interest in COVID-19, as we call it, from a little different point of view, not necessarily, but we will may get into that in a minute from the medical point of view, because there's a couple of questions about it. But um, the real damage has been done in the collateral world of a permanent, probably effect, no doubt, I would say about this, on the children of this pandemic, just as my mother, here's my analogy, just as my mother was permanently affected by the depression because she was a young person when it happened, it never left her. It never, ever, uh, she never recovered from it, if you will, emotionally, psychologically. She was very frugal. It did turn out that that generation was very frugal, saved a lot of money, worked hard. Kind of the opposite here. We're not saving money. We're not working hard. We're not you know, it's kind of resulted in a kind of a gloom and doom we can't get out from under. And just as kind of a litmus, Dr. Savage, there's a political dichotomy here that is obviously superficial, perhaps, maybe not. The ones still wearing masks, I'm told, are the liberals. <laughs> the ones not wearing the masks are the conservatives. What is going on? Is that so? Is that any way so? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that you you people are wearing it as almost a political badge, either wearing it or not wearing it based on politics. When in reality, though, I am conservative, you know, that should have nothing to do with response to a pandemic where you are within the political spectrum. Um, you know, there's you're referencing kind of the, the dollars and what you can buy with them. And unfortunately, it shows a flaw in the concept of Keynesian economics, where Maynard Keynes, who was in, I believe, the 1930s, had this concept of the government constantly tinkering with the economy in almost a, a Marxist type way. But in, of it, that the thought of throwing money into economy would stimulate the economy. We constantly hear that when they refer to stimulus checks, stimulus packages, all these things are essentially referring back to Keynesian economic principles. And the problem with this, and this is why it's stunning to me, is that even economists don't tend to grasp that all those stimulatory measures are meaningless when the dollars that you're injecting are worthless. So, you know, they, they make the assumption that people are just going to accept this massive infusion of dollars as though it's actually a representation of economic production, which is what money is. Money is, you know, a replacement to the barter system. And, you know, the concept is, well, I, you wanted to give me a pig and I've got this bushel of hay, but I don't really need the pig right now and you need the hay. So I'll give you the hay. I don't need the pig, but you can give me these essentially IOUs, these dollars, and I can use it either to buy something from you later or to go someplace else and buy it. And But I believe that that IOU, that dollar has has value. Well, what if I don't think it has any value? Then that's worth only the paper it's printed on, which is near nothing, and, and, and the monetary system collapses. Well, we, are spent, we have $32 trillion in federal, uh, or $31 trillion in federal debt essentially today. We're just fractionally shy of that. So again, to put this into, into uh, imagery, imagery perspective, if you had a stack of dollar bills going up, that's eight times beyond the moon. 
a stack of dollar bills that is so tall that it would tower eight times over over the moon. And we are pouring money onto that all the time. I mean, our current deficit spending is in, in the vicinity of a trillion dollars every year. Uh, and if we somehow were to invert that formula, and let's say we went to a $300 billion surplus, well, that's great. And let's say we spent that only on the debt, that would still mean it would take 100 years of $300 billion surpluses to pay off our existing debt, assuming that there was a surplus above and beyond the interest rate of that debt, which is, again, itself currently over $300 billion every year. We're spending $300 billion in interest rate on the debt alone. And the estimate is by 2029, that would be over $700 billion in interest payments with a 2.8% interest rate, which, by the way, the Fed keeps increasing the interest rate. So it's likely to become much, much, much worse, which means we could essentially, by 2029, fund a second United States military with the interest rates of the federal debt alone. Well, you know, I'm all more and more a fan of Dr. Strangelove. I swear to God, here's here's a government that on the one hand um, uh, doesn't mind building the debt. And on the other hand, just keep printing the money, which builds the debt and, <laughs> and doesn't seem to be able to connect the two. No one is really stopping the spigots and, um, you know, time. You know, it's, I, I swear, I can't think of too many things now. I'm out here with, with my opinion that in our institutions, including the medical world, it hasn't been politicized, and 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 that that to me is very difficult to reverse. A, a very astute listener here is watching and saying, picking up a theme you presented a moment ago. Out of the depression came World War II, in a way. Yes, correct. Yes. Now, out of the pandemic, do we have a threat that can be as ominous as the one Putin is saying? And it already has COVID has played into his hands in that he shut off the gas and all these things, which gives him enormous leverage. And of course, I'm sure you're up on what he thinks of the West. It's decadent and it's um, self, uh, uh, you know, absorbent with its own interests and et cetera, et cetera. I wonder about that, you know, because this is a very good comment. Out of the Depression came World War II, so much economic chaos. And uh, and now we're looking in Europe at the same thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. It's not just you just don't know history. You could know history, but not recognize where you are in the, in the loop of history. So we have to be able to be prescient to understand where we are. And I'm not saying for sure that we're heading towards World War III, but there certainly are the winds of war you know, are blowing and it's very scary and we need to back off from, from this. And again, if we have disenfranchised, disillusioned populace, you know, they look for scapegoats and it's easy to scapegoat some other nation. So, you know, we could end up because of societal discontent end up in, in, in broader conflicts, which are, are in the age of nuclear weapons could be could be devastating beyond comprehension. You know, people wonder, you know, when the nuclear bombs were dropped, the ethical aspects of that. Well, since, you know, obviously that's something that historians can debate. But if you do think about a timing of when they could be dropped, there was actually no more advantageous timing for when they were used because they were not used at the onset of a war. They did not trigger war. In fact, you could argue that they ended the war early preventing even further death. So there is that, that line of argument. But they were the weakest nuclear bombs we've ever made. And they were so, the weakest nuclear bombs ever made were so hellacious that we in the, in the world have never used them again since. Well, the nuclear weapons now are a thousand magnitude more powerful than those nu- nuclear weapons. And the fact that we are even discussing their use, it should send a chill up every single person's spine. Yeah, you know, my father was on the amphibious uh, assault scheduled for it into Japan when Truman dropped the bomb. And uh, it was pretty much thought of then that our losses would be so great trying to get into Japan because Japan would ferociously defend their homeland uh, that it was absolutely necessary to save American lives. And he never wavered from that um, because he'd been all through Leyte and all that in the Pacific Theater. Um, Came back you know, an alcoholic and all that from it, as a lot of those guys did. But, uh, you know, I'm looking here at your, your, some of your thoughts. How could we 
focus COVID relief funding just on medical needs? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think we're to the point now where that actually is probably not a wise uh, uh, That's been covered, right? Money. That's taken care of, hasn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the thank goodness, I think we're vastly over the hump on this. This doesn't mean we're not going to get COVID again and that people won't continue to, to succumb to COVID. But the magnitude of the, uh, the, of the pandemic, I think, I think, believe it or not, Biden was correct, though he may have said it ill-timed for his own uh, purposes because he's trying to pass emergency COVID spending while he's declaring it, on the other hand, to be over. Um, but if you can believe the World Health Organization numbers right now, though COVID is still claiming many, many people, if you put it into a global perspective, it's killing fewer people than falls. So uh, globally right now uh, on a week to week basis. So that doesn't mean we won't get more waves. We could. But the chance of them being as as bad as the earlier waves is, is dramatically less because over 80 percent of the population now is likely already had COVID. So, you know, initially we had such a terrible response to it because it was the, quote, novel coronavirus, right? Novel. We had not, our immune systems had not seen it. They were not aware of it. We, we poorly responded to it. Well, now most of our, our most of the populace has, has already had it. Uh, you know, thankfully, a lot, most, most of us have survived it, um, though many people have succumbed. And again, it is a grand tragedy. But um, now if we see it a second time, even if with slight mutation, we're less likely to have quite the same response immunologically as we did the first time where we, we didn't respond very well and people, people succumb in great numbers early on. Um, so it, it, could, it will likely fade into the background of the milieu of seasonal diseases that, that we, we deal with. And with the advent of some of the antiviral combinations and such, we actually do have some tools uh, to address this issue going forward. But I'm, I'm very happy to say, at least as of right now, in the current mutations, um, the fatality rate is dramatically drowned from the peaks. And, and my hope is it'll stay that way. Yeah, we've got a couple of observations, questions, I guess. Did the vaccinations actually help? Because some people were just absolutely turned off by the RNA. Yeah. I suspect well, you did. Yeah, so that's an interesting one too, right? You know, so you can get uh, opinions all over the board on this one. I, I think the one thing is clear is it is a morbid vaccine. It does cause side effects, and it's a little different than other vaccines because, though, uh, really a truly amazing technology. I'm not, you know, that you can argue whether va vaccination was never the original intent of the mRNA technology. It was to try to make proteins that the body needed to make, not to trigger an immunologic response. And um, when those cells create this spike protein the cells that create it themselves become targeted by the immune system. So you're necessi uh, by necessity creating tissue inflammation. The belief was early on that the most of that would occur near the ejection site, that the mRNA wouldn't go to distant locations. It would just stay in that area. So you'd get some inflammation in your arm, you know, but that's no big deal. Unfortunately, we've seen that it goes to, to other organs like the heart and even the ovaries. Um, I don't think the final chapter is written as to, you know, whether this in the aggregate has been a good thing or bad thing. I will say, I think initially with the alpha strain, I do think it decreased that because we don't see alpha anymore. Now it may have gone away anyway, but we may have actually accelerated the mutation because if you create immunity towards the one strain and then you get a mutant variant out there that uh, evades that uh, immune protection to a certain extent, you're actually you're actually selecting for mutations. And I think it would be, this is purely hypothetical on my standpoint, but I'd be curious to find out if the vaccines actually accelerated the rate of mutation. Um, so long story short, I don't think the final chapter is written on that. We don't know all the long-term sequelae from those vaccines. Um, if you look at COVID alone, at least short-term after the vaccine early on, there was definitely some protection. But now there's even some data that questions the long-term protection and even if you could get an inversion of some of that protection later on. So, so it's, a, it's a highly contentious issue. Uh, and if I continue to speak more about it, I'm certain Facebook will block anything I say. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? I swear. Yeah. We have but, you know, these are important discussions to have because good, honest, open people need to be having these conversations. That's the, that's the ethos of science is debate, not uniformity, not consensus. Right. Consensus is not the goal of science. In fact, actually, it's the, the rebels that question the status quo that advanced the science because then we see the flaws in our existing beliefs and, and can advance it. And a lot of times we come up with ideas that aren't good either, but they, then they can be disproven by quality research. 
Um, but boy, oh boy, want to talk about an attack on science. That's it. We've absolutely had that. Yes, and I've talked to many guys in the MD world, or a lot of my friends and all. And when you really question them, and they'll say, "Well, nobody really knows a darn thing about COVID." Uh, yeah. You know, we get you know some of them are very very you know get the vaccine, particularly if you're older. And uh, I, I suppose targeted toward older people, it was a, probably a, a choice that was made sense. But um, whether you dip into the young people and shut down their education and all that, that's another story. So. Um, and it, it's very difficult. Like you say, so many things will have to take a long term look back to see where we are. I can remember the day that my mother told me, boy, this is a great day. Go to school. You're going to get the Salk vaccine for polio. Mm-hmm. And man, alive, did that take the pressure off us. Um, yeah. I was and you didn't so- have to force people to get it. They understood it. They saw the the consequences of and Again, early on, we saw that kind of motivation by the American populace, too. But. I don't know what happened with our health establishment. It was really terrible. And they've really, you know, cost those of us physicians who are trying to behave in a responsible fashion. They've cost us great face. I mean, people don't believe us anymore because of the hubris with which they've acted. I mean, not even admitting when they don't know something. There's a, It's okay to do that. And, and they couldn't. You know, Fauci would, you know, with in great grandiosity, you know, claim to be the the bearer of all knowledge. And... um you know, and then when they result into, you know, coercion and force to do these things instead of, you know, uh, compelling through reason, intellect and other things. And my argument is if if they can't compel you through reason and intellect, then perhaps their argument is truly not that compelling. Uh, and um, I, I think that's what we saw with COVID. And what they don't understand is a backlash is that even if you can get people to do something that you want through coercion, it, you're going to have incredible spite, anger because they felt that they were violated, their rights were violated. In fact, they were. Uh, and they're much less likely to follow anything you say in the future. So should the next disaster, whether infectious or otherwise, occur, people aren't going to listen. And this is the price of the draconian force, that they, the uh, reflexive authoritarianism to which they engaged. Perhaps no more visible figure in sports has suffered the consequences of this than Djokovic who was disallowed into the country to participate in the U.S. Open when the pandemic was declared as pretty much over. I mean, that was there was a classic example of government lagging behind the science. And so it makes you wonder, did government ever understand the science? And was the science, like everything else, politicized? And that's unfortunately where we are in so many things right now. People don't trust the FBI. They don't trust the Department of Justice. You and I are knowing that YouTube, Facebook hover over us all the time. Um, the Supreme Court is meeting this month about whether or not to rein in tech companies for this very issue. Um, there's so much turmoil going on in credibility and whom you can believe. And um, perhaps the medical world took a hit on it, too. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just don't know. Um, how long it will take to resolve it, but it took my mother a lifetime and she never got over the depression. I mean, she never got over it. I mean, not health wise, but, uh, but uh, yes, emotionally, psychologically, uh, economically, um, all that business. We've been talking to Dr. Chad Savage and we can kind of go as long as we want to go. I, if you don't mind, I will break for a moment from my sponsors, my weather. If you want to hang on, I think you'll be able to hear me. And I'm going to report a little bit on, utilities and how they've responded here, Dr. Savage, in Florida when we come out of our break. We're talking with Dr. Chad Savage, who's in Michigan, taking up a topic we've been wanting to talk about with you all for quite some time now, and that's the effects of COVID, not just on the credibility, perhaps, of the medical world, but also the financial kind of solvency of the nation. I don't think that's uh, hyperbole. So we'll be right back in a moment on the Ward Scott Files after we thank our sponsors, and I come back and talk about the weather. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on 
on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On-the-Spot Dry Cleaners, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, thanks. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. We're going to do a little weather. Thank you very much, Ward's Weather Report. Thank you to Lewis Oil. Lewis Oil since 1962. Wendell Lewis, great family, great supporter, uh, wonderful person, helps us deliver a good show to you. Hopefully you enjoyed it a little bit, something from it. Uh, well, Florida is still stunned, as you know, from this hurricane. Um, Sanibel Island, those places will be forever rebuilding, if ever. Um, I'm of the mind probably that they never should have built there in the first place, but who am I? I'm not the government in Sanibel Island. I really am convinced more and more that Sanibel Island was just a glorified sand dune. But, you know, uh, that's the way we are in Florida. We take our chances because we love the water and the coast. Now, even the Carolinas are continuing to uh, grapple with ions uh, aftermath, and it's crashed up into the northeast, and the residual rain is really pounding New York City and places like that. There's a uh, record rainfall in Philadelphia and the Jersey Shore. So, um, even over in Puerto Rico, of course, the damage is there. And I don't want to be cynical, but Biden's not missed a chance to be political about it. Um, it seems that the money we put into Puerto Rico doesn't go anywhere where it should go. I mean, we put a lot of money before into Puerto Rico, and evidently it wasn't used to prepare uh, for the eventuality of another impact. Now, the Wall Street Journal has a very interesting discussion today by Catherine Blunt about Florida's electrical grid, which I want to cover with you just a minute in the weather section. Uh, in 2019, legislation required companies to file 10-year storm protection plans and promote burying their lines underground. And that has really uh, been a wise decision in many places uh, by the state of Florida. Um, the uh, Just a few idea, uh, the topics here. Tico Energy, which is a sub uh, subsidiary of Emory, Inc., uh, its system held up in Tampa pretty well. Much of it's underground. Uh, instead of weeks to restore power, uh, because much of the power which is above ground is also not poles, but concrete. Uh, and yet much of the system's underground. It's becoming pretty clear that uh, they're going to be able to um, be out of that danger zone a little more uh, quickly than other parts of Florida. Florida Power and Light uh, determined that its system fared much better than it expected to because they invested about $7 billion a year uh, on capital improvements uh, over the past few years. So the company initially had expected to restore power to most of its customers by October 9th, but now they think they'll have it back by October 7th. They replaced the majority of wooden poles 
with ones made of concrete or steel in preparation after these storms in the past. The process began uh, after Category 3 Wilma in 2005 when uh, there were about 100 transmission structures lost. So rebuilding the transmission structure made a huge difference, Florida Power and Light said. Of course, Fort Myers Beach is going to require total reconstruction. The hardened infrastructure fared pretty well, which, uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, it is a decimated scene there, and it's going to require quite a little bit of time to uh, shore up what Mother Nature proved to us that uh, it has the upper hand. Lee County Electric Cooperative, which is a small electrical provider, serves six parts of the uh, serve parts of six southwestern counties. They experienced significant damage. It may take as long as four weeks to get power back with them. So that's just a report uh, on the weather section here on something that you take for granted until the storm hits. Uh, we here at the um, uh, Warhol Command Center have a backup generator. Uh, we kick on automatically should the power come down off the transmission lines. The, the power to the facility here is buried underground. So we took that uh, step also when we constructed the place here, but we also had the backup generators. So, and um, there's more storms to come. There's, unfortunately, there is uh, some trouble brewing out in the Atlantic right now, and they're keeping an eye on it. Uh, it is um, more activity in the Atlantic basin. So we'll see how that goes. We're not out of the storm pass here yet in the state of Florida. So Dr. Savage, uh, that's one thing you don't have to experience in Michigan. Um, no, no. And actually, I have so many friends who've moved to Florida recently because of, uh, you know, DeSantis and the, the freedom that you guys are uh, are experiencing down there compared to what we were during the pandemic up here. And for many of them, that was the first hurricane they've ever experienced. And boy, what a one to experience. So some of them, once they were able to get power and able to get signals out, were just telling me horrible stories of their neighbor's house being destroyed, you know, and things of that sort. And yet they were thankful to be in, in their own. Um, actually, I'm part of a, my, my practice. I have a medical practice and it's kind of weird type of practice off topic called direct primary care. And one of the leaders of our movement is a Dr. Lee Gross down in Northport, which is just north of, uh, of Fort Myer. And, and I know he has been involved in cleaning up and things of this sort. And a weird thing happened to him recently, which through his practice called Epiphany Health, he was sending out Facebook posts, uh, emergency Facebook posts to his patient population to, to warn them and, and advise them. And Facebook fact-checked and censored him. Really? Um, so to his credit, he reached out to the governor's office, DeSantis's office, who, who contacted Facebook. And they uh, meta apparently contacted him and apologized and unblocked his Facebook posts. But they were blocking emergency notifications from a doctor to his patient. So it's... it's Pretty, pretty stunning. Um, but uh, um, we're, we're in a different type of practice called direct primary care, which is a membership model. It's not largely governmentally or, or insurance company controlled. It's a uh, low cost, budgetable, affordable membership model. And, you know, we have a conference every year called uh, DPC Nuts and Bolts. So if you have any doctors, and I'm sorry to just throw this quick pitch out there who are interested in, in going into a more wonderful form of medical practice, which restores the nobility of our profession, you know, check out Direct Primary Care. We've got a conference in Dallas in about a month. And if you look up DPC Nuts and Bolts or, or Docs for Patient Care Foundation, they can find out information about that conference. Well, I'm to the age where a lot of my doctors are retiring. And um, one, they've been there a long time. And more of them are dismayed with medical practice. Yeah. Uh, more paperwork, more paperwork, more paperwork, um, less time with the patient. The practices are consolidated and owned by business people who really have one eye on the lawyers and therefore uh, order tests that don't need to be tests, but cover you in case. And there's paperwork and this and that. I know this whole profession pretty well, having so many friends in it and also being to the age where I visit them both professionally. And uh, uh, it, it is, um, and the hospitalists are such a strange group of guys. I, you know, uh, they're okay, but they don't know you. They know the computer. They yeah. come in in the morning, look at the computer and see what the last, hospitalist left as he left and then take that and interpret it and, and the personal care is gone so yeah, continuity care is what they call that and that's largely eroded we're, we're one of the few type of practices that still has that because we always see our own patient in the clinic and and uh 
you know, the older you get, the more you need that kind of continuity and, and familiarity with, with your physician. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I used to wonder, why do old people like going to the doctor all the time? You know, and then you realize, oh, it's, it's because everything's breaking. They're not enjoying this process. They, you know, they have a doctor for every organ system because there's a problem with everything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you were alluding to in the last section what's changed in medicine. And one of the big terrifying things is that the the era of politicization has absolutely entered medical schools, um, licensing boards, and even medical school admissions. So for a long time, it's been thought through the continuing med medical education in various states requiring certain kind of woke, if you will, um, uh, you know, uh, classes that are mandated for the provider base to continue continue licensure that's not worse than that they're not trying to take existing doctors and and change them to a more woke ideology they're actually the admissions to medical school is excluding anyone with a more conservative mindset and how they're accomplishing that is through the essays that you submit to enter medical school they're asking like what are you doing in regard to critical race theory what are you doing to further uh equity you know they're they're using screening questions to basically bar the door to anyone with an individualist or conservative mindset. We covered a story yesterday on a nurse with 39 years of experience who was suddenly asked by the uh, organization that now ran her hospital and all that to uh, go through medical woke training, if you will. And she got what they really call it was implicit bias training. Yeah. And um, she said, no, thank you. And so they terminated her. And, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. Implicit bias is bias that is, is that you don't even consciously think, right? It's bias. It's implicit bias. It's somewhere below the conscious level. So if you think about it, that's actually worse um, um, than Orwellian because in Orwell's dystopias, uh, the thought police tried to control the content of thought. Well, with the implicit bias training, they're telling you that they can help control the content of thought you didn't even think. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, oh, pardon me while I could fall. I'm oh, sorry. yeah. And, 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 I, and I was recently talking actually to a progressive group, um, and I was trying to explain the difference because I'm absolutely for racial equality, you know, in, in rights. Sure, who is it, you know? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to say <laughs> because it was a mixed blend. <laughs> it was actually a prayer group, but it was from a more liberal church. And um, I was trying to explain that the, the training that we had in the 90s, which I thought actually was more spot on versus the training today. And when we were dealing with different ethnic and racial issues in the 90s, what they tried to do is they tried to teach us, and I'll use the example of a Muslim, uh, a Muslim patient. So if a Muslim woman comes to see you, you should understand that they have a different cultural ethos, that, that when they come in, you don't just start undressing and examining the woman. That is, that is verboten, that you, you, have, you have to get permission from the husband, and we may in our, in our uh, more uh, liberal society, think that that's, that's maybe not normal, but that is normal for their society. And you have to respect and understand how they think through things. So you can, you can honor and adhere to their desires and become the best doctor for them. Because if they, if they don't think you're being respectful, they're probably not likely to be um, compliant patients. So they taught us how to understand how other people think so we can be respectful to it. But now they're trying to tell you how you think. <laughs> well, that, that's a vastly different thing and you know pardon my bluntness but they don't have a clue what i'm think. i think <laughs> uh, you know and and you know so so how are they to project their own biases and beliefs into other people's minds um if you didn't think it you didn't think it you know forget this implicit bias thing yes we all you know you can recognize something without being biased by it you can say that's a blue shirt and that's a red shirt that didn't mean that you treated the person in the red shirt or the blue shirt differently or, or, or poorly. And, and, you know, it's interesting because the left right now seems to be totally focused on skin color and their groin. So it's either <laughs> their skin or the groin. And, you know, I think we're more complex creatures than that. I just simply have them go back to uh, uh, some logical training and write syllogisms and examine the major minor premise and the conclusion and make sure that uh, the major premise was derived from something other than the hocus pocus and, uh, you know, in what my line of work, uh, it was, you know, it was easy to capture the faulty thinking. Uh, you know, there, I mean, I don't, bias didn't really matter. It was whether or not, uh, the, if you will, the lenses through which you were looking had not been cleaned lately. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, and, and everybody says we need to speak more about race, but I think actually race needs to be detuned. And I think we need to stop hyper-focusing on this. You know, um, any sociologist worth their salt will tell you that if you want to divide people, you focus on what makes them different. If you want to bring to people together, you focus on the shared things. Like I can have, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I went to University of Michigan. It's a very liberal um, university, probably one of the most in the United States. And, and I have many, many wonderful liberal friends. I love them. They're wonderful people. You know what we don't talk about? We don't talk about politics. Yeah, because they we won't talk, talk about, anymore if you do. <laughs> yeah, we talk about football. We talk about everything else. And we have a wonderful time together not talking about the things that separate us. Because if we instead <laughs> came in and solely focused on those things that make us different, we would probably dis, you know, dislike each other. And the truth is no individual shares all things in common with any individual, regardless of race or age or anything else. In fact, you don't have the same uh, beliefs in yourself over time. So if you're looking for someone who wholly agrees with you all the time, you can't even do that with yourself. <laughs> you know, my doctor friends are also the ones who are really kind of off the record. They'll tell me, we got to know what sex you were on that birth certificate if we're going to treat you properly medically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's just being disregarded. Uh, you know, it's, you know, we could, that's a whole nother discussion. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a reason we focus on biology and medicine. You know, it's, it's a, it is really something we're in the hands of this type of movement uh, that is, uh, you know, it's not spiritual. That's what is essentially wrong with it. I had the occasion to go to a, uh, a black funeral this weekend. Man, did I love it. I mean, I love it. It's in the South. We're here. We're all God-fearing Christian people. The choir, the, the, the preachers, the them. You know, it's real. And the manners, the manners among black and white. OK, we are so res pardon me. Excuse me. How you, ma'am. That's us in the South. We get labeled, mislabeled. We know we've known each other forever in the South. We get along with you. I mean, just go to a black funeral sometime and sit down and you'll be you'll see what we mean here. But you know what saddened me, Chad? There were no young black people. Mm. Well, that's true. The white churches, too, unfortunately. It was all the older black people. Yeah. And well, so the black older people say they've lost that young generation of black youth yeah. and they can't get them back. They can't reach them somehow. They're off on TikTok. They're off on Instagram. They're off on, you know, whatever the thing is that floats their boat now. But I was just um, thinking about what you're saying about implicit bias. Somebody cooked that up in an intellectual ivory tower, I'm afraid, and has um, perpetrated it on mankind. <laughs> yeah, what harm it's done. It's great. You know, it's you. You know, I'm just going to look at you and judge you based on your skin color. And, and you know, and, and that goes in both directions. And that's terrible. Instead of accepting and loving each other for who we are as people. And that's, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm, I respect people's differing views on religion and things of that sort. But one beautiful thing in Christianity is we we acknowledge each other. As sister and brother, you know, we look at each other as fellow, you know, creatures in Christ. And it doesn't matter where you came from or your skin color or anything of that sort. Um, you're, a, you're a child of God and, and we love you before because of that. And, and I think we need to get more, whether it's based in Christianity or otherwise, we need to get back to recognizing our shared humanity and respecting each other from that and stop focusing on, on superficial features that make us not look like each other. Well, none of us look identical to each other. You, you, you have no facial hair or and no offense or hair otherwise. And I look like a shaggy uh, you know, <laughs> here. So, and yet I, and I'm enjoying talking to you because we have, we both wear glasses. So there we go. <laughs> well, it's been, uh, we, we really passed some time and originally Chad and I wondered how much we'd have to say to fill the hour. And we're down to about five minutes left. We might as well stick it out to the bitter end, Chad. Okay. But uh, uh, I've enjoyed uh, uh, all these discussions that we have with uh, our kind of um, free ranging uh, agenda here on our show. We we're really, going to fix society here, Ward. Just yeah, give us another gonna, five uh, minutes. The way I view it, Chad, is um, this is just a classroom. This is an extension of teaching. And all the students are watching and listening. And um, they may glean from it what they'd like. I did this all the time in the classroom, brought in guests and I uh, had them listen to different points of view. And, um, um, you know, that was I had, did not believe in censorship. Talk to you the critical thinking skills and you could make your own 
censorship. I mean, what, who was I to give you parameters? I mean, you establish your own parameters. I'm not going to go with you 24-7, 365. You've got to learn to do this on your own. And then the thing I always suggested to them, Chad, and they said, why are you being so hard on us learning this stuff? And I said, well, because one of these days you're going to come back and take care of me. And I don't want you doing it in a sloppy way. You know, one time I was being wheeled in for a, uh, a myelogram, I believe it was, when I had back surgery. And uh, the, the uh, fellow rolling me into the room, I looked up, was one, had been one of my students. Oh, wow. And so, so one that got the A, I hope. <laughs> wait, that's exactly said. I said, hold everything. Stop this gurney. Let me rummage through my book in the sky and see what grade you got. And he had an A. Ah, there we go. Okay, good. He was one of the brightest students in the class. And I said, okay, go ahead. And you can roll me in here. Otherwise, I ain't going, brother. (laughs) Well, if you think about that, you know, hard class is basically like an academic form of suffering. Well, people, you know, think, well, suffering is terrible. But in reality, what wretched people we would be if we never suffered. Um, Suffering actually creates character and, and provides us with empathy. And, and there, I thought about writing an article years ago with the, the ironic uh, title of, of the best thing you do for your child is bite them because I thought that would get interest and people would be like, what the, what the heck are you talking about? But one of the old kind of, um, you know, ways of trying to address babies biting, like when you get like a one-year-old uh, and they're teething and they go around and they're, they're staggering around and they're biting everybody, that one of the old, uh, my grandmother's old reasoning on that was, well, bite them back. Not enough to do like fleshy damage or anything, but just enough to trigger the pain receptor so they go, ouch. Well, what you're granting that child in that moment is empathy. Because they finally understand what they're doing to others. You're, you're, you're giving them a, a taste of that. And then they usually stop very promptly when they recognize that, wow, when I bite someone, they bite me back. And that's what it feels like. So that's probably what they're, they're making connections. And they did actually um, studies on, on serial killers. And they found one commonality is that they lacked empathy. Yeah. So, so by, by suffering, we actually develop understanding of other people suffering, develop empathy, and actually become better people because of it. That's very good. That's very interesting about uh, this, the, the serial killer uh, mind. I was, um, you know, we had Danny Rawling here in our area years ago. I don't know if you remember him. He was a serial killer. Mm. And um, a friend of mine was his public defender. And one time I asked, uh, I found out a detail about Rawling at one of his crime scenes where he did a horrific uh, thing to his victim. Um, he had visited twice. Once he went in and and killed the victim. He went back to his campfire and realized he left his wallet at the scene. So he just went back and got his wallet. And when he got his wallet, he had a sandwich and a glass of milk with the dead victim there. And so I asked my friend, the public defender, I said, man, that guy must have had tremendous courage. He said, no, 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 no. You're thinking about it as a normal person. Danny thinks about it like he just left his wallet at work. Yeah, that reminds yeah. me of the couple that's years something. ago. That's something. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me a couple years ago when those girls were carjacking that taxi cab or that Uber, and that poor gentleman got dragged behind his car and killed. And the first thing the girl worried about was that she'd left her phone in the car. I mean, totally not recognizing the humanity of the person that she just destroyed. Um, you know, empathy is a great thing. Understanding other people's suffering is 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 a great thing. I'm not saying we. I'm looking for people to suffer, but that. That recognizing our shared humanity is a concept of empathy, and our society needs a whole heck of a lot more of that right now. Well, thanks for joining us. We're just about down to our final end. I look forward to talking to you again sometime. I can't remember when we did it last. It was a while back. And um, um, I remember your friend, too, down in the Fort Myer area, who uh, no doubt has got his hands full down there right now. Yeah, God bless him and all the people down there. Yeah, it's it's a tenuous situation, to say the least. But um it's not like we aren't prepared for it. And uh, I thought the utility article was pretty interesting um, that we had a storm here pretty bad when about 10 years ago. and We lost power for 16 days. And back then, the utilities were not nearly ready for it as they are now. We've been talking with Dr. Chad Savage. He is um, uh, really concerned about COVID overspending, if you will, as I have been for a long time or the cup. Somehow using the government using COVID as a cover, if the way I look at it, to proliferate political agenda. 
unnecessarily and not even related to medical issues. I think that's kind of a summation. I got that close. Uh, yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, well, thank you, sir. Well, we're, we're getting some folks. Some guys feel we had a great show and great guests, so we appreciate it. And um, we'll be back tomorrow. We'll have our former representative, Ted Yoho, to Congress. Should be joining us tomorrow. So uh, we'll keep trying to bring you a quality show on the Ward Scott Files. Have a great day. Bye-bye, doctor.